0: We're in James chapter One today. we're going to be really focusing on verses nine through eleven, but it, this is all part of a string of thought, stream of thought that James is um, is beginning with, and it's not immediately apparent, but the more we talk about it, every week, I think you will see it build out. And it's just that the reality was it was so difficult to to bring the nuance from each passage. Uh, from each little section that we had to take it slow. We couldn't deal with it in one sitting, which is, which is fine, but it means we'll have to do a little review this morning. So I'm going to pray now and seek the Lord's uh, hand and His guidance as we read His Word. Uh, and and on, uh, honestly, seek His uh, anointing and His power that His Word might be preached and interpreted accurately that you might hear from Him today and not just me. So let me let me pray for us, Father. I'm grateful uh, for your Word, uh, we know it is the Word that works. It has power. It it changes and transforms us. It shapes us into the likeness of Christ. It 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 sanctifies us, uh, making us more and more holy as we learn to believe it more fully and act on it and live more obediently to it as we submit under the authority of it. Father, would you just encourage us, challenge us, confront us in error that we might walk rightly. I pray that you would be here today with us, that your spirit would do just as you said he would do and lead us into truth. We need you. these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James is writing to Christians his primary objective in this letter is it's kind of I tried to capture it as much as possible in the title of this series is to put our faith in action, to put legs to our faith, to to make our proclamation match our practice, to make our words and work line up so that we wouldn't be a people who come into church on Sunday morning and put on our Sunday go to church clothes and make it look like we're really good, righteous people to impress others and then go home and from Sunday afternoon through Saturday night live our life to ourselves as if church or the things that the church stands for, the, the Christ that the church believes in, uh, didn't matter. James has no concept, has no, he makes no room for cultural Christianity at all. In fact, I think if we practice his words, if we listen to him closely, we will see that that he's going to call those people out and make a distinction between the true Christian and the Christian that's Christian in name only. The farther we get, the the more I think it becomes more and more obvious. Well, as he's writing this letter, he is not writing to the world around us. We have a, have a, a, a problem in the church. We love to point at the world around us and talk about how sinful they are. We love to point out all the problems in the world... And ignore the ones in here. James did not write to the people in the world and call them to obedience. This is not what the world should be doing to make themselves acceptable to God. His instruction is for the church to live in an acceptable manner because they have been made acceptable by the gospel. Again, this is about making our proclamation and our practice one in the same. If you think of it this way, when you, were, when you were lost in sin, when you were outside of Christ, you were running from God. You were chasing after numerous different gods. I, I, I'll find my satisfaction in a relationship. I'll find my joy in money. I'll look for my identity in a job or a relationship. And, and if I can get all the right ones, if I can achieve the American dream, then that's, that's heaven for me. Somewhere along the way, God has taken hold of your life and turned you around and said, trust me. Look at me. And when he did that, unbeknownst to you maybe originally, he turned you upstream. You are now living, counter. your your call now, having trusted in Christ, having seen God as creator and savior has put you on a trajectory that puts you swimming upstream against the flow of the rest of the world. That's why when James is writing, he's writing about very common issues to Christians that are called to have very unique reactions, very unique interactions, very unique activity because of their new identity. It's a whole new way of life. We cannot in one breath say we trust Jesus and in the next breath run after everything else and it be true. So James deals with that. and He's been dealing with it. In fact, that's where we start. James chapter 1. We'll read through 1 through 8 to get a little bit of review. To highlight some of these ideas because they matter for us in the text we'll study today. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now, we've done this enough that you ought to know what's coming next. But, man, it really sounds like he's going to start out a letter that's going to be feel good. Man, this is awesome. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wait a minute. Can that be? Yes, it can. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you wake up and the roads are a little slick and it's a little more difficult to come and gather with God's people. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you can't remember that March is different than February and you get called out in front of the whole church (laughs) repeatedly dealing with calendar issues. Count it all joy that the one day that matters I won't miss because Jesus won't let me miss it. When he returns, I'll be with him. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your strength, your, your faith gets stronger. It endures. It grows in endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is well with my soul, because my sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. Right? Right? And he's not just doing a, a small thing. He's not just doing a partial thing. He's moving us to perfection, completion, lacking in nothing. Christian, count it all joy when we, we we do not face trials in vain, but look beyond the trial for what we become through the trial. This is a radically different perspective. This is a radically unique Christian response to trials and suffering, difficulty. In fact, I think, I didn't do this, I I didn't bring this out that day uh, as we looked at this passage more closely, but I, I think that we should be more concerned if we aren't facing trials of various kinds than when we face trials of various kinds. Because if you aren't facing trials of various kinds, your faith is not facing the resistance required to be strengthened and that steadfastness that grows will not move to steadfast or, or to completion, perfection, lacking in nothing. So if you know someone that's never had a bad day in their life, then you need to tell them the truth. This world was not meant to be a source of our joy. If it is, they better enjoy it all now because this is all they've got. Count it all joy. We do not face trials in vain, but look beyond the trial for what we become through the trial. He goes on verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the first stop is about trials and difficulty. The second stop we see is James dealing with wisdom. Christian, the trials of life may reveal our lack of wisdom, but our good God gives wisdom to anyone who asks him in faith. This is as much a promise as it is a command. Don't don't, don't misunderstand. James is not giving you advice. It may not come out clearly in the English text. James is not just advising you to ask the Lord in faith. It is an imperative command. In the Greek language, he is commanding with authority, ask God in faith. This is one of the... uh, I've been using the number 54. I've seen another number 59. 54, 59 commands, 108 verses, however you want to count it out. That's a lot of commands in 108 verses. He is not playing around. He's telling us what it looks like to live this life in Christ. But this this particular command comes as much with a promise as it does a command. If you'll ask him in faith, God will give you the wisdom you need. He is committed. He is committed to giving you not just a stronger faith, but the wisdom necessary to walk and navigate the trials that he puts in front of you. So that you can, can count it all joy. So that you can reach completion, perfection, lacking in nothing. God will give you what you need. All you got to do is go to him in faith. Now, we didn't deal with this much last week, the verses 6b through the the second half of chapter, verse 6 through 8. We didn't get time to deal with it as closely as I would have liked. But let me just let me just highlight what he's saying here. Let me just hit some highlights because it matters for us today as we continue on through the rest of the passage. He says you've got to ask him in faith, because if you don't ask him in faith, you can't expect him to act. In in fact, he says that the the one who who doesn't ask in faith is like a person driven and tossed about by the wind. It's like a a, a wave on the sea that's being confronted by various other winds. And and it doesn't know which way to go. This isn't the clean, crisp wave that people are surfing on. This is a wave under the, the winds of a storm that's being tossed to and fro and moving directions at every turn of the wind. It's completely in subjection to the troubles and trials of the storm. You get the picture. In one sense, we've been called to count it all joy, but the person who won't approach God in faith seeking his wisdom is not going to find a reason to count it all joy because they have no reason to believe that God would give them anything. Now, don't misunderstand. God's not limited by our doubting. We just don't get the assurance that comes from this promise if we approach him believing in everything, even if it's just on par with him. Oh, God, God God's not working out the way I want. Let me, let me go out and seek out the best worldly wisdom that I can find. He's not giving me the answer I want. My life's not as comfortable. I don't have as much money in the bank. Let me go get a different job. Let me go find another way to, to earn more money. I don't care if it, keep, if it separates me from God's people. I don't care if it keeps me from doing things to honor him. I don't care. I just need more money because that's going to give my, give me my security. Oh, this, this, this man that I like and appreciate and enjoy isn't a, uh, isn't a Christian. Well, you know, that's, that, that doesn't matter. The world tells me that's okay. So so we run after all these things and we're chased or, or we're pushed about by all these winds and all these troubles. And then we don't trust God enough to live in obedience to what he says in full submission to his word. And we wonder why we feel so uncertain. I think that's what James is getting at. You see, faith in God stabilizes us. Wisdom from God enables us to navigate life faithfully. Now, don't misunderstand. I, 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 I want to be clear. I don't think James is calling out a, a perfected faith. The context, when you look at the context, you can see he is not talking about a people who have, have it all figured out. There are people who are in process, growing and strengthening in a faith that's being made strong. But there are people who, even though they don't understand, who even do, who, who even though they, they face trials and don't respond appropriately every time, every time they face the trial, they run to Christ. I mean, you think about his apostles as they're in the boat on the sea. And that storm comes raging. Who do they turn to? one sleeping in the boat we're gonna die now he challenges them oh you little faith where's your faith but what was it that drove them to him to begin with instead of jumping out and trying to swim for their life or trying to do some other idiotic thing that would put them dependent upon their own power When Mary and Martha met Jesus coming to to their house after Lazarus is dead in the grave for four days. I mean, I I think he confronts them a little bit. He, He rebukes them a little bit in their response. If you had just been here, Lazarus wouldn't have been dead. Because they believed everything they had seen and heard to that point. They had believed it. Why did they send to him to begin with? When they face their brother sick and dying. Because they trusted him. They believed in him. And they knew if he'll just be here. He can stop this. And so from a position of ignorance. And weak and small little faith. They run to Christ. You see I don't think James is talking about a perfected faith. I think he's talking about mustard seed type of faith. That no matter what leads you to the one who is most powerful who stabilizes us in the midst of the storm, who gives us reason to be confident in the fact that we can count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, who has the wisdom and the understanding, the insight, the perspective that we can turn to and learn from so that when we face them, we can respond to them faithfully. James is just saying, don't put anything up there with him. If you go to him and ask him for wisdom then go to him and ask for him for wisdom. You don't need a plan B. In fact, I think in James' economy here, there is no plan B except being blown about by the winds of a storm. So there's no sense in grasping at straws, making a plan of our own, determining what we should do, just listening and hearing his word and walking in faith. Walking in wisdom. That is a call. What we see today, though, as we move on in this passage, is not just that that this faith from God and wisdom. Or faith in God and wisdom from God, they don't just stabilize us in the trials that come at us from the outside. They stabilize us in the trials that come from within, in our own hearts, in our own minds, but even from within and among God's people. Let's read it James 9, or 1 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. And again, this I mean, this is in light. Let the lowly brother ex- uh, uh, boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers, withers and, it with, and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know what to mind, came to mind every time I read that this week? Well, it's been coming to mind for weeks, actually, but especially this week as I focused on this passage, I kept thinking I need to start this sermon out. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I was like, James, man, you've been talking to Solomon. He's depressed you. Everything's going to die and wither and fade. It's going to be terrible. And on the surface, that may be seemingly what he's saying. But there's reason to boast. Don't miss that there's reason to boast. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun Rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. As flower falls and the beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. We typically look at boasting in a negative light, right? I mean, we typically look at bragging and, and arrogance and people standing up and, and making a big deal out of something, in kind of a negative light. But, but James's point here is that the problem isn't our boasting, it's the object of our boasting. If your if your ability, your ingenuity, your accomplishments, your 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 uh, your, uh, your your looks, or something about you, even in this passage, your social standing, your socioeconomic standing, if you are boasting in that, you have no reason to boast. It will leave you wanting. The wind will come. The scorching sun will rise. The hot wind will blow, and one day it will wither and leave you wanting. I don't. I, I, I honestly don't care how good you think you are. But Christian, we have every reason to boast when we boast humbly as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. This just isn't advice. Again, this isn't him giving us some feel-good idea. He is commanding it. This is one of those 54, 59 imperatives in this book. He is commanding us to boast in Christ. Not in our standing as the world sees us. It's his expectation that we see ourselves no longer as the world sees us, but as the one who has saved us sees us to measure ourselves in the light of who we are in Christ. He measures that and he shows that to us from two contrasting perspectives, both the poor and the rich. The lowly brother is the poor brother. The the, the, the rich brother is obviously the rich. Now, there's some people, I just need to say this, so that if you're out there reading and, and looking at different uh, resources, there are some people who make a case that this rich man that he's, highlighting is not a brother in christ that this is a lost person and if that's the case then then basically james is uh just just kind of confronting him with the reality that his wealth will leave him wanting i don't i don't read it that way in fact i i fall in a group and and it's split pretty evenly but i fall in a group of people that, that that believe when he says let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich he's saying likewise the rich brother And that brother applies to both the lowly and the rich. And I think that's what he's saying. And so that's how I'm going to teach it today. He's dealing with both poor people and rich people. And you just think about all the troubles that come between poor people and rich people. Poor people want what rich people got. And rich people think they're better, smarter, more worthy, more accessible. They're valuable in ways that poor people aren't. What do you think that does to a group of people? That divides us right, I mean, just right smack across something that's as silly as the paper it's printed on. James says there's another way. Poor Christians boast in Christ. In Him, you have been exalted, in Him, you have been raised up. Instead of wanting what rich folks have or thinking that God has in some way passed you up, not blessed you in some way or believing some prosperity gospel that a wackadoo preacher on TV has told you that if you'll just believe the right things, that you just say the right words, that you'll have a bunch of money coming in. If you'll send him a thousand dollars, plant that seed of faith, then, then God's going to restore you and repay you and make you a lot of money. That is a lie. It's a lie. I don't even know how they can, in good conscience, stand and teach those things when verses like these in James confront us that Christians don't get out of trials. They just have a unique response to trials. I can't, I can't imagine that they, they look at that verse and they must say those just weren't faithful Christians. And yet James is calling them faithful Christians because their exaltation is not in their wealth. It is in what Christ has done. In fact, I put a save the date post out. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was in the announcement. I can't remember where it posted at. But again, I'm not good with those things, but I count that joy. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, on, on March 22nd, is that right? Somebody tell me, March 22nd, American Gospel is a, a video that we're going to play here. It's a movie that addresses these issues. If you have any questions or concerns about prosperity gospel, and you got friends that are mixed up in it, You want them to hear truth, bring them. It it is a necessary thing. And I want to say this gently, pastorally, but truthfully. Don't think it hasn't in some way invaded your own heart and mind. Truth is, I think most of, not most of, many of the people sitting in this room, Would like to consider themselves the poor Christian. I want to invite you on a trip to Africa with me. I want to show you what poverty looks like. You're not poor, you may not have as much money as you want, but you're not poor. Ah, you might be poor in accordance to American standards. But let's step back a little bit. Consider the privilege that every American lives in, the opportunity that every American holds, even in the the inequality of that privilege. Don't misunderstand. There's a bunch of junk wrong here. But you have options that 99% of the world doesn't. We are not poor Christians. We are not poor Christians. But yeah, we can still hear this. In Christ, we are exalted. Because of Christ, you are not what you used to be. Because of Christ, you have reason to boast. And rich Christians, well, if I'm not a poor Christian... I must be a rich christian rich christians boast in christ in him you are made secure now there's a lot of things that james is going to deal with with wealth as he walks through this letter but specifically here specifically here it seems that he addresses the security the certainty the 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 s- solid life that wealth tends to provide He's like, count yourself in humiliation. Like Be grateful that you're not dependent upon the wealth of the world or the approval of the world of your wealth because all that stuff is going to fade. All that stuff is going to wither. All that stuff is going to die and only lead to death. You have been pulled down from it and set squarely in front of the cross of Jesus Christ so that you might look up at Him instead of the things of the world. Be grateful that He showed you that you aren't all your money makes you believe you are. Be grateful for that. Boast in your humiliation because in Christ you are made secure. This is the, the thing is that we lie to ourselves about our affluence in wealth. And yet we then turn around and depend on it as if it's the very thing that's going to make us happy, satisfied, secure. We lie to ourselves about how wealthy we really are. And yet we turn around and run after it as if it's going to really do something for us or make us feel secure. James' point here is that neither the poor nor the wealthy have any standing in social economic standards. The poor are exalted in Christ. The, the rich are humiliated in Christ. They are brought front and center before the cross that they might see the truth about who they are. Well, it's necessary to, to humbly boast in Christ in this way. What's what, what's required for us to get to this place? What's What's required for me to see these verses and understand them and believe them. Faith in God. And wisdom from God. You see this doesn't sit outside of the context that we've been studying all along. This is a flow all the way through. We need this faith. We need this growing, strengthening, steadfast faith. That we might look at the things of the Lord and believe in him, believe in what he's doing, believe in his power, trust in his providence, look to his his plans. Not our own. And we need understanding from him so that we can see with his eyes, so that we can understand with with his thoughts, so that we can kind of grab, grab, grab a perspective that's not our own. We need to be brought up on the mountain so that we can see further. We need to be able to look and see things that we can't see by ourselves. See, our problem is that we often trust more in what the world determines as successful, rich, or blessed. We look too closely at the temporary fading treasures of this life. And rather than the eternal riches that we have received in Christ, what we need to do is look again at what God has done and trust in those things. So let me just remind you. We use these verses quite a bit. I think we need to hear them quite a bit. Ephesians 1 through 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with some spiritual blessings. No. Every every What does that mean? There's nothing he's held back. He's not, he's not saving some for later every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places if you read the rest of that passage you find out that you get knowledge wisdom power that you've been chosen predestined chosen for holiness and blamelessness predestined for adoption forgiven by the blood of Christ redeemed or redeemed by the blood of Christ forgiven of your sins that you get insight into the plan of God to fulfill uh, to fulfill his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth you know what you have in him every Spiritual blessing, everyone. I don't even think Paul's able to list a, a, a full and exhaustive list simply because what in the world we' would still be reading. Second Peter, and it's not just Paul that thinks this, so I'm Peter, another apostle, right? Another person who walked with Christ, who was inspired by God to write these words. Second Peter one, three through four, His divine power has granted to us some things, no, all things. He's not holding anything back from you. He granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We don't often add this to it, but this is so powerful. Verse 4, "...by which he has granted granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature." Man, we get to to feast on the blessing of knowing and participating in the glory of knowing our God who created us and then chose to save us. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Now, lest you make the mistake and think, Look, I escaped. I'm, I'm going to boast in what I did to escape. No, no, no. Where did you get that? We go back to verse 3. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory, by which he granted us. His own glory granted us. His own power. His own divine identity, His eternal attributes is what makes us able now to escape corruption, to escape the withering and wilting world, to escape the death that's going to come. So that we might be partakers of the divine nature, that we might know the promise of eternal life. Trust that. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't act wisely with your money. Don't, don't, don't hear that. But I am saying you shouldn't trust in your money more than you trust in God. You shouldn't trust in your level of success in light of what the world says more than you trust in what God has said. We have to trust him we have to trust that these things from the scriptures are true but we also have to have wisdom from god to understand how that that changes everything for us it's it's not it's not immediately apparent right so we need teachers teaching us we need people to help us see and understand we need god to open our minds and give us wisdom so we go to him and we ask in faith This is why i say we we can't just run boasting around we can't just we just must humbly boast He's not calling us to deny our social standing, but to see it in a new light. To see it from God's perspective. So we must approach it humbly. And that's why I appreciate uh, Spurgeon's quote from a sermon he preached. It's not on this passage, but it's something that I've used as a definition for humility for a long time. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. You see, what you need to know is not what the world thinks of you. What you need to find approval in is not what the world approves of. Where you need to find acceptance is not in the world. How does God see you? When he looks at you. You see, we stand here. Measuring ourselves off all kinds of things. And yet James is calling us to, to, to look at ourselves with humility. Not, 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 I'm a worm in the dirt kind of humility. That's, that's, that's false. Who am I in Christ kind of humility? And boast in him because he's made you what you never could have been. He's given you what you never could have earned. He's done for you what you never could have achieved he has made you a partaker of his divine nature he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing he's calling us to james is calling us to this radically different way of life when we repent of sin and we turn to faith in faith to jesus christ he is saying swim against the tide not because it's going to be easy not because it's going to be acceptable to everyone but because we trust him Because we believe in Christ. And because we have wisdom from Christ to see that all these other people, they're they're being blown all over the place. But we have a straight line. We have a stable path. Because of Christ. Believe him. Ask for wisdom from him that you might know who you are. And I think in this passage we can also see some implications... Of our, for, for our lives, uh, I don't know if I wrote that right on the screen. I realize I didn't write that right on my notes. What are the implications for our lives of humbly boasting in Christ? I, I think the first and most immediate thing we see in this passage that's demonstrated by this text is lives marked by unity that comes from bowing before the same God. See, we aren't simply divided because of sin. Sin does divide. But we are divided because in our sin, we are all serving the God of self. And maybe that's most evident in our wealth. The poor want it. And we see that every time we go to Africa. Again, I I don't don't even, even entertain the idea that we're poor. We just don't have as much as we want but every time we go to Africa, I've got people telling me, oh, I just need to go back with you. Put me in your suitcase. Tell me. I mean, I know in some way they're kidding, but in some way they're not. They want to get here so they can make a lot of money. Because it doesn't, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. You don't have to be rich to be, to be consumed with money. Poor people can be just as consumed with money as rich people can. And we see it. But rich people, they, don't, they, they already got it. Now they're just afraid of losing it. Or they've learned a lesson. The amount they have doesn't provide them the happiness, the security, the the certainty that they want. So maybe if I just get more. There's this idea that once we arrive at some position in life. Well that's just not enough. I need more. That's, That's the point of arrival. When I get more. That's so divisive. What James does here. As he calls the poor Christian and the rich Christian to stand before the cross. Now, what matters? Now, what matters? How much money you got in the bank? Or what you believe about that cross and the Savior who died on it? That's unifying. When we quit clinging to the things of the world and quit pursuing the things of the world and we bow before the one and only true God. Unity becomes the natural fruit of that. I think James is dealing with a problem of unity in this church. I think you can kind of see it through the, through the, through the letter as he, as he deals with the different things. But if we'll listen to this command, I think unity is one of the natural responses. Another implication, lives marked by the right amounts of contentment and dissatisfaction. Now, in some ways we think, oh, I'm supposed to be fighting for contentment and I'm and I'm supposed to be satisfied, right? But realistically, this end home. There should be a lot of things that dissatisfy us here. There should be a lot of things we're not satisfied with here. There is an inheritance that will never fade, perish, spoil. It's being reserved in heaven for you by faith, by the power of God who has saved you through his Son, Jesus Christ. This should lack. this life should look lackluster in comparison to the promise of the inheritance that we have reserved for us, that my name is at a table in a chair so that when I go up there, I'm not going to be looking for a seat. I'm going to have a seat at the table with my Savior at a celebration, bringing glory to the God who is eternal. Brothers and sisters, this is different. This is dissatisfying. I shouldn't be able to find any satisfaction in this world. Why in the world would I expect to? But I can learn to enjoy the things of this world as gifts and not gods. You see, James doesn't demean or diminish or even speak ill of wealth. Don't 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 hear that. He didn't say that. You can't make those words mean that. The wealth is not the issue. It's what we do with the wealth that matters. So we can find contentment with what we have so that we can look to the thing that's coming. We can be dissatisfied with the things of the world so we can further appreciate the things that are coming. We can be so content with the things in the world that we have a holy discontentment that we would simply pursue more and more of Christ. A holy dissatisfaction that leads me to believe, leads me to act in a way I don't have enough of him. I count all these things as rubbish for the surpassing worth of getting Jesus. And everything I cling to here keeps me from grabbing hold of more of him. If I ever grow tired and satisfied with what I have of Christ here, I'm probably growing too satisfied or pursuing too much of the things of the world. Our lives are marked by unity. Our lives are marked by the right amounts of commitment and dissatisfaction. Our lives, I believe the the natural reaction of this is marked by generosity that reflects God's character. I just want you to hear these words. I just want you to see what he's done. What he is doing. He He is making you steadfast in your faith. He is bringing that steadfastness to a place of full, uh, full effect, that, that it has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. This is God's work. And if you lack wisdom, where do you go? And what does he withhold? If you need wisdom, you go asking him and he will give it to you if you ask in faith. What did we deserve from him? Nothing. But we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He has given us all we need for life and godliness. He is a generous God. And when we quit clinging to our identity in the things of this world. We will be able to hold them loosely. So that they can be used to serve his people. They, They can be used to serve you we don't have to hoard them they can be enjoyed rightly among his people they can be used to serve the meet the needs of his people and they can be used to advance his gospel mission that's what god has done very generously and i think that's a natural reaction when we stand before the cross we reflect that nature I think one of the other implications is lives marked by true worship that leads others to worship. Instead of devoting ourselves to the pursuit of money, like everyone around us, you live your life for His glory in such a way that it draws people's attention so that you are able to be a witness to tell them about this glorious, generous, gracious God who's exalted Even the likes of you. (laughs) And unless you think I'm pointing a finger. Especially the likes of me. Yeah, I know my sin. I'm learning it goes way deeper than I first imagined. But I boast in Christ because he has exalted me even the word boast when you get into its original language is it's about rejoicing in Christ count it all joy my brothers when you face trials of various kinds boast rejoice in your exaltation rejoice in your humiliation because you know you know it all points you to Jesus Christ this is about honoring Him, worshiping Him, giving your life in the pursuit of Him. See, the poor think their lives would be better if they had more of more, more wealth, so they give their lives to the pursuit of it. The rich, they're terrified of losing their money and they never think they have enough, so they're pursuing more. And by hearing and obeying James' command, we're able to see money as a gift and not a God. We're able to use it as a tool in mission rather than the purpose of our life or the point of our mission. And we are able to worship the only one worthy to be worshipped. Finally, I think the last implication I would point out here is this lives marked by hope in the definite fulfillment of God's promise. These words are not just commands that we are to obey. They are promises made by God through his word. He promises that he will bring us to perfection complete lacking in nothing. He promises that He will use trials in our life for the testing of our faith to to ensure its validity, but also to strengthen it so that as this endurance grows, we grow with it. We become more spiritually mature. We look more like Jesus Christ. He promises that if we ask Him in faith for wisdom, He will give it. And He promises that where money and, and, and wealth loses Its ability to perform, he will not. We are exalted in him. And he promises, let me read you one last verse in this flow of thought. Blessed, verse 12, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You want security? You want acceptance? You want approval? You want to know some level of certainty in what's to come? You trust in God and you walk in His wisdom. Because He will fulfill His promises. See, trials of various kinds, they don't have to rattle us because we know God is using them for our good. We aren't like the wave being blown about by all the winds coming from every direction. We are made stable when the wind, uh, when the hot wind blows and the scorching sun shines, what God has done in us will not wilt or die, but will stand forever. Christian, we have every reason to boast. When we boast humbly as servants of the Lord. We have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to humble ourselves. And receive his gifts. Every reason to celebrate and proclaim the majesty. And the glory of Jesus Christ. Because look at what he has done. And look at what he is doing. He isn't finished. You have so much to look forward to. If you walk in faith. With wisdom from God. but I need to deal with something because there is a contrasting view for the non-Christian. I told you that James isn't writing to the non-Christian. He's not writing to the people outside the church, but he is dealing with people who are potentially religious, but not faithful. And I think in his words, we can clearly see A contrasting view. See, if we refuse to boast in Christ because we don't trust in Him and we don't have His wisdom to understand that this world will never satisfy, you have no reason to count it all joy. You will have no stable standing in this life, you will be blown about like a wind in a storm. And eventually that storm will will give way to a scorching sun and a hot wind that blows and withers it all up and leads to your destruction. I am not saying that to be harsh or hard. I am saying that because I love you. And there's not a person in this room that I want to see end in destruction. Trust in him ask him for wisdom that you might walk in it and then boast not in what you have not in what you can do but in him and what he has done and if that's not you, repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ and turn with us to look upon his glory and boast in Christ alone